episode 23 with Jack Hunter. Welcome to the Multidimensional Evolution Podcast with me, Kim McCall. The premise underpinning discussions on this podcast is that life extends beyond the physical dimension, that death is not the end of life, that we're all connected energetically with each other, both in the physical dimension and across dimensions, and that there is a purpose to our life that involves growth, healing, and assistance to each other. We will be having conversations to expand your consciousness, help you connect with your essential self, and live life as an integrated, multidimensional human being. But given the subject matters, I have a request. Don't believe in anything, including what is shared here. Experiment, do your own research, have your own experiences, and always use discernment. The musical introduction to this episode is by the Finnish fusion artist Axel Kessler. The song is called Reincarnation. My guest today is Dr. Jack Hunter, who spoke with me from his home in the hills of Mid-Wales. Jack is an anthropologist exploring the borderlands of consciousness, religion, ecology, and the paranormal. In 2017, he received his PhD in anthropology for his study of spirit mediumship in the UK. And despite still being a pretty young guy, he is quickly becoming one of the leading scholars in the anthropology of consciousness. He is producing the kind of writing I would have loved to have when I was going through university and struggled to find suitable references to support my budding passion for an experiential anthropology of consciousness. I first discovered Jack's work when he brought out the Paranthropology Journal, which is freely available online. He's the author of Why People Believe in Spirits, God and Magic, and has published a range of edited volumes, including Talking with the Spirits, Strange Dimensions, Damned Facts, Engaging the Anomalous, and his most recent, Greening the Paranormal. It is greening the paranormal that we discuss here, exploring topics such as the role of religion and spirituality in tackling the ecological crisis, how different belief systems influence our relationship with the land, animism and a relational ontology as ways to change the way we interact with the earth, and much more. At a time where the future of our planet may very well depend on the relationship each one of us is able to foster with her, these topics are of the utmost importance, and so I hope you enjoy this conversation. All right, Jack, so I'm really, really looking forward to... Um, having this chat with you today. I, I have a lot of admiration for what you've been doing in the space of anthropology of consciousness. And, um, you know, so I'm really, yeah, this is great to have this chance to finally, after being in various forms of communication over the years, to actually have a bit of a chat about how you got into that and, and all the work that you do in that space. So really happy to have you on today. Glad to be here. Yeah. And look, to, to start up, I, I guess I'm very curious because, you know, having the, the sort of a shared background in both anthropology and a strong interest in consciousness, um, I'm curious how that played out for you. How did you, was there one of the two that came first? Um, did you discover your interest in consciousness through anthropology or how did you get into, into these spaces? Yeah, um, I think... Um Going looking looking back into my past, into my life, and the kind of some of the things that seem to have led me down here, down these weird avenues, the things like um, early experience with uh, psychedelics. Um, you know, I was in a band and we experimented with stuff and um, had some um, experiences. And in one one of my experiences was I, I saw. Um, what I took to be like uh, fairies or something like that, some kind of, uh, it, it, it seemed as though I was interacting with something or something was interacting with me that was different to the rest of the kind of psychedelic stuff that was going on. So that was one thing, you know, just experiences like that. Yeah. And then um, I'd always had a bit of an interest in 
religion um spirituality and things like that i've been interested in buddhism um growing up and i was always into religious education in school just a a subject that is taught in uk schools where Mm. you can you kind of like do a survey of the world religions that was always kind of like my favorite subject so So it was actually it it was actually religious religion more broadly it wasn't just christian religion it was uh no no yeah it's uh it's a it's world religions Mm. um some it depends some schools teach it depends you know if you go to a catholic school then chances are you, you're going to get taught predominantly about Catholicism, but most yeah. schools teach um, about all of the religions, which is really good. Yeah. Um, so I, I wanted to find a way of, of kind of mingling that with these uh, strange experiences. How could I use that kind of a perspective? And then I, I stumbled across anthropology. And so when I went to university to study anthropology, I just became more interested in the like, anthropology of magic, um, anthropology of things like witchcraft and uh, shamanism and all of that kind of stuff. And I met um, Fiona Bowie, who went on to be my PhD supervisor. So she kind of helped me uh, navigate my way th- through it. Um, and that's kind of how I got into it. So now I'm like, you know, trying to apply as best I can a kind of like a academic scholarly approach to the paranormal more generally. Mm. And how did you find at university? Because um, that's where I can relate, right? I, there was a certain certain experiences that I brought in that when I started reading shamanic literature or, or of different kind of um, possession cults or different kind of religions, you know, from across the world, yeah. I brought to it this lens of my own experiences, also through psychedelics and then meditation and so on, mm-hmm. and. Um, very quickly got frustrated with sort of functionalist explanations of, um, so just for people who are not anthropologists and explanations that just describe uh, kind of social purposes of certain things um, and assumed that people are having very real experiences of uh, altered states of consciousness and so on. And I found there was a fair bit of um, resistance among the lecturers that I had to some of my essays or ideas that I put forward. How did, how did that yeah. go for you? I think um, at the time that I went to university in Bristol, the anthropology, archaeology and anthropology, my degree was in archaeology and anthropology. The department there was really um, quite diverse and exciting. And um, I was lucky enough to, you know, to do anthropology of religion and cosmology with, uh, like I said, Fiona Bowie. And um, if you check out her like back catalog it's all about things like how do we deal with things like belief experience and ontology reality of um you know religious things or spiritual things um so she kind of like uh in fact she introduced me to edith turner's work okay uh, and uh fiona had done some studying with ed and eventually we got to meet ed um in uh, Esalen, which was pretty so maybe cool. maybe you could explain for people listening who don't know who who Edith Turner is and her her role in this a bit about yeah that. Um, Edith Turner is um, the wife of Victor Turner, who's a very famous anthropologist. Most people probably know him because he talked about things like liminality, um, communitas, and all those kind of things. <laughs> so I think probably only cool. most anthropologists know him. <laughs> yeah. They're quite famous words, though. Yeah. And um, unitas is like the feeling that you get after participating in rituals that kind of binds your social group together. Um, and I think it was after she, Edith Turner, had been with Victor Turner during, you know, his field work, and they'd written a lot of things together. And I think after it was after Victor Turner had died, Edie went back to um, Zambia to re engage with some of the rituals and things that she'd seen when she was with Victor, you know, like 20, 30 years earlier. Um, And she explains how, you know, they'd been kind of, you know, although both of them were kind of like quite forward thinking anthropologists anyway, they were still kind of like being traditional um, detached observers of ritual um, in the like the fifties. And then by the time she went back in the 1980s, she decided that she wanted to, you know, 
emotionally participate in the rituals to, to become engaged with it. And I suppose probably, you know, the fact that she was returning after so long and all of that kind of stuff, you know, fed into it for her. But anyway, she participated in Nisihamba ceremony where they extract this. It's like a, they call it like a spirit tooth that's in, is got into the body of the afflicted person. Um, and it's like a, it's a spirit that's in there, but when they extract it, it comes out in the form of a tooth. And there's this elaborate ritual that goes on, you know, for hours. But Edie describes how she kind of, you know, she went with it and she became, you know, she just went with the flow with it. And then at the climax of the ritual, she described this sensation of, um, she said it was kind of like something was about to be born. It was like that kind of like, you know, because she could feel that she was, re the climax of the ritual was reaching. Mm -hmm. And she saw, and other people around saw as well, the medicine man or, or shaman or however you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, um, extract this gray blob, ectoplasmic kind of plasma thing from the back of the uh, afflicted patient. And then he capped it up and put it into a jar and sealed it off. And, you know, when they went to look inside the jar, it was this uh, human tooth. And um, she went, you know, this was obviously a, a major experience for, you know, to see the ectoplasmic form at the climax of the ritual. Yeah. But she wrote a great paper about the reality of spirits. And it was kind of like a challenge for anthropologists to take seriously these kinds of experiences, not just as like beliefs, but as actual um, events, you know, to yeah. take seriously. Yeah. I discovered, I discovered her paper literally the year after I, I graduated my undergraduate studies and was so excited to um, find somebody write about that kind of stuff. So, yeah. Yeah, it's really it's amazing. But then, you know, once I started to look into it, actually I found there's a long lineage of anthropologists going right back to E.B. Tyler, you know, widely thought of as like the father of anthropology. Mm. And even he was, um, you know, doing fieldwork with spiritualists in London in the 1800s. And there's an interesting article published about his um, private diaries where he'd, you know, said, you know, he said he'd, he'd been to these seances and he'd seen things that he couldn't explain and all that kind of stuff. But then he hadn't published it in his, you know, public writings. Yeah. But there's always been in anthropology, I suppose it's because we are, or anthropologists are kind of trying to engage with the other or whatever, that these experiences pop through. And it's just like yeah. the, there are tensions between those anthropologists who want to embrace it and go with it and see where it leads, and those anthropologists who want to kind of ignore it or uh, who prefer to stick to the like um, mainstream cultural belief style way of thinking. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Well, there's some kind of, there's an interesting um, kind of kinship connection between you and Tyler then, if you're, um, because you did your PhD on, on mediumship, right? Yeah. yeah. What, how did you get um, into, how did you get into that subject matter? Yeah, so it was, um, as I was going through my undergraduate dissertation, becoming more interested in things like spirits and look at researching spirits cross-culturally. And I wanted to find a way that I could, you know, do my own field work with um, spirits. Ooh. So I started to attend, um, I started to go to spiritualist churches in Bristol and, um, you know, try to make notes of my observations and things like that. And I had um, readings from mediums and stuff that were interesting, but uh, nothing that was really like mind blowing for me, but it was all when I think back to it, it was all building up uh, to some, to what ultimately became my thesis and my main research, but it's kind of like it was preparing me for it. Yeah. And I went through, like I went to um, like a psychic development circle and things like that. Um, and wrote about my experiences of uh, trying to meditate in these red lights and things like that, which was really good. Did you have your own shot at mediumship? Did you have your own attempt at, at, at playing that role? Not at that time, but when eventually when I, because um, what happened was I didn't feel like I was making much of a connection with the people at the spiritualist churches, um, whether it was because I was, you know, reserved and shy and wasn't being outgoing enough and all of that kind of stuff. Or mm. part of, that's part of it. And another part I think is because I've explained a few times before, but I think um, 
med- like um, spiritualist church congregations fluctuate quite a lot. And, you know, you might get someone like me, for example, who's there for a few weeks um, and then they're not there the next week. So it's always people popping in and changing around. So I wanted to find somewhere that felt like a, I could get a bit deeper into it with a maybe like a smaller group of people or something like that. And um, so I did a bit of searching online and I found uh, the Bristol Spirit Lodge, which was quite a lucky coincidence. <laughs> These people who were developing trance mediumship and physical mediumship which is all like ectoplasm and mm. the fun stuff. So it's physical it just mediumship so also is manifesting uh, objects and this sort of thing, isn't it? Or, or what's the aspect? What's, yeah. What's the science physical mediumship? Physical mediumship is um, basically, yeah, like um, manifesting objects or there's something called apports, which is like um, when you bring physical objects into the seance room from different locations. Um and obviously also ectoplasm, the semi-weird, semi-physical substance that um, spiritualists think spirits use to manifest yeah. um, in, in the physical world. Um, so I was, I, you know, I was amazed, basically, to find this group who were literally 20 minutes up the road from where I was living and in my <laughs> student accommodation, yeah. who were doing such crazy stuff. And I was like, I'm going to get in touch. So I, I sent an email to the... Uh, the, the circle leader and she was really nice and invited me over we had a chat and things and then eventually I um, participated in some seances and it was interesting enough from the very first seance to kind of keep me hooked yeah uh, well maybe hooked. interested <laughs> yeah. um, and then ultimately my undergraduate dissertation continued on to become my uh PhD. And so how did you navigate then during that time, uh, I suppose that, that tension between being the anthropologist observer and experiencing the, the, the phenomena and did your, did your worldview or your paradigm shift as a result of your, your research around these phenomena or, or did it more confirm things you were already expecting or... Um, what was the impact of that work on yourself? Um, because I'd, you know, I was familiar with Edith Turner, I kind of went in with this approach of trying to emulate um, Ed's approach of being open to experience and actually treating my own um, subjective, you know, or semi-subjective as they sometimes turn out to be, experiences as ethnographic data. Yeah. Um, so I, I was kind of that's that's kind of like in a way what I was going there to do to see if I could have those same kinds of experiences as uh, you know the mediums were describing or the, the sitters were describing. Okay. So I kind of knew what I was intending to do with it. But that said, at the kind of like at the peak of my involvement with it. Um, thing it seemed to sort of uh, it was almost like it kind of spilled out into my uh everyday life as well um and it kind of led me to realize that you know when you start to engage with the uh other world or the spirits or whatever how, whatever how we want to conceive of what it is that we're engaging with <laughs> that it you know it's much bigger and it starts to influence your thinking and um you have lots of experiences, basically. So the more you participate in it, it's one of the big takeaways from my thesis is that, you know, it's a participatory phenomenon. The more that you participate and put into it, the more that kind of comes out of it. Mm. Um, yeah. So I was, I was, ha- I was seeing things, seeing um, strange flashes of light. Um, I had lots of very vivid kind of like hypnagogic um, hallucinations <laughs> and things when I was in bed um, that didn't seem to be related, but it was all just happening at the same time. And I was also able to, you know, write quite quickly (laughs) that it was all, you know, it was all happening and I was in it and I was writing well, and I can't write that quick anymore. (laughs) Did you have a sense of, I mean, when you, when you link that to the, to the mediumship, do you have, did you have a sense that maybe there was some, somebody writing through you? Is that, because that's, that's part of the, medium should practice right yeah um 
I'm not sure whether there was something writing through me, but um, I think I was just on a bit of a roll. Yeah. Um, I was like, I was in it. Fully immersed. And it, yeah. And now I've got those like many years of distance from, you know, being going to seances and things like that. Yeah. Um, it's more difficult to write about now, obviously, in retrospect as well. Yeah. Now, I did want to ask you, you, you kind of said, you know, whichever way we conceptualise this, um, and I think one of the senses I get looking at your writing is that, you know, you're kind of uh, following it. There's a bit of an edge there around um, trying to write to an audience or include an audience that might be completely closed to the reality of spirits, to use Edith Turner's words. Um, and at the same time, honor the experiences. Uh, that's, I mean, I'm very familiar with that edge. I, I find that quite common depending on the audience you're, I'm addressing, you know, how I frame things. But I, I guess I'm curious, you know, in your own mind, have you, have you landed on a paradigm with which you, you know, f- that you interpret for yourself? Who is it that's communicating through mediums? What is it that people are seeing when they're extracting things out of, you know, like in the ceremony that Edith Turner saw? Yeah. Um, yeah. What, do you have a reference framework for yourself? Yeah. Um, but it's not like um, one of the problems that I have with a lot of writing and um, thinking about, you know, paranormal and all of this kind of stuff is that people want to come to like a fixed description or a fixed like explanation so like you were saying before when you you were feeling dissatisfied with the functionalist models well yeah. you know functionalists basically say well we can explain everything in terms of social functions yeah and that's it so one of the, that's one of the things that i'm i'm really cautious of so i don't want to be someone who's like coming to the conclusion that it's all you know definitely discarnate spirits you <laughs> know yeah so i don't like the idea of it being that simple and straightforward. So the idea that I've come up with to kind of accommodate this is what I've been calling uh, ontological flooding. Right. Um, and basically this idea is that we can um, be in a kind of like a, a frame of mind or a state where we can entertain uh, multiple simultaneous kind of processes going on in these kinds of situations. So, you know, like, let's use functionalism again as an example like um functionalism works and it makes sense (laughs) so you know i'm not saying that functionalism is wrong necessarily Mm. but what i'm saying is that that's just one part of something that's much bigger you know so describes like an element an aspect of social reality right yeah exactly and so you can't argue with it um, on one level, but then you can argue with by saying, but actually there's more still um, that goes on around it. So, you know, actually we're talking about a combination of factors like, you know, social functions. We're talking about like um, cognitive processes that are going on combined with, you know, physiological and biological processes. Um, and then also this possibility of, um, you know, spiritual or non-physical forces as well, different kinds of forms of uh, mind and intelligence and stuff that seem to be out there yeah. so it's like you know ontological flooding is saying yes we can embrace all of these different explanations because they're all giving us parts of the puzzle which is ultimately something much bigger and more complex than any single one uh, yeah. explanation yeah so that's that's kind of my way of framing it uh, in a way mm. no, it doesn't make anything this. clear <laughs> it's very holistic, you know, and that's kind of seems to be really um, your approach generally. That's so and we're going to turn now to to discuss your book, Greening the Paranormal, where you look at the interface between the paranormal, spirituality more broadly, and environmental issues. And I, I mean, that's such a such an important discussion, I think, at this time. And yeah, your approach definitely is very seems to be very holistic, trying to encompass as much as possible mm. into that. So yeah. in terms of that, um, I guess in broad terms, how do 
well, maybe just talk about the paranormal. So you use the word paranormal, you use the word religion and spirituality and, mm-hmm. and their relationship to, to the environment. But maybe we just unpack paranormal religion and spirituality and how they relate in the way you, you use them. Yeah. Um, I, guess, I suppose, like, all of these are contested terms. <laughs> um, I remember when, when we were at, the, at Esalen, we had a big debate about you know defining explicitly what the paranormal is and defining what exactly is a near-death experience and what do we mean by a religious experience and i think it's quite easy to get um kind of like bogged down in trying to pinpoint exactly what all of these things are and I'm, i'm not trying to say that they're all the same thing or anything like that but i think that there are points of connection between you know spirituality the paranormal and and religion but what I mean by the paranormal, like uh, in general, is I, I kind of I like the term because um, it's a little bit shocking for academics because mm-hmm. you know academia tries to build a wall against that kind of thing. But it's also an academic term. Um, it was coined, you know, in the ni- late nineteenth century, early twentieth century, by um, psychical researchers who were trying to develop a science of the you know the paranormal. Or the super, they didn't call it paranormal yet you know, science of the supernatural or whatever. And they, what they were trying to do was to kind of like distance themselves from the religious connotations, you know, of other interpretations. So, you know, calling these events miracles and stuff implies that there is a, you know, a divine God or whatever who's, who's doing it. So the psychical researchers wanted to kind of naturalize the supernatural <laughs> by yeah. calling it, you know, the paranormal. Um, and then obviously that's built up bad reputation, um, you know, scholarly reputation. But I like to bring it back and say, well, actually it is it was intended as an academic term in the first place. Mm. So what they meant by that term was, you know, um, basically referring to phenomena that are not fully or adequately explained by current scientific theories, which is a nice kind of like a broad way of, of looking at it. So, you know, we could mm. apply then, we could, describe things like spirit mediumship, you know, from an anthropological perspective as paranormal, because we don't yet have an adequate theory to understand it. <laughs> you see what I mean? Yeah. You can apply the like, that's what paranthropology is, the study of, you know, those things that mainstream approaches in anthropology don't quite have a handle on, or what parasociology would be, or parapsychology. Um, so that's what I mean by paranormal, quite broadly. And not not like relating to any specific kind of dogma about the ultimate ontological status of any of it, but yeah, you know, things science doesn't yet have a grasp on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And so then you make an interesting distinction between um, in, in that basket of paranormal phenomena between psi phenomena, which um, I think you define as telepathy and telekinesis. Uh, yeah which you suggest are, in fact, so well established now, they've been scientifically validated. Now, you don't say this, but as I'm saying this, they could almost come out of the paranormal basket by that definition, yeah. right? Yeah, um, they, could. And, they could enter into the realm of nature. Yeah, yeah. And then you've got all these other phenomena, and you have quite a, quite a variety of things in there. Maybe you could go, there's UFOs, and what, what other things do you include in that, in that basket? Yeah. Yeah, I like to keep it, like I was saying, I like to keep it quite broad and open because actually I think, you know, as soon as you start to delve into like one aspect of the paranormal, say like psi or, um, you know, telepathy and psychokinesis and that kind of stuff, although it's kind of relatively academically okay to talk about that kind of stuff, you know, because we've kind of tried to remove all of the connotations of spirits and all of that kind of stuff and reduce it just down to psi so we can talk about that. But as soon as you start to entertain the possibility of it, it opens up a whole new vista of, you know, different things. So like, you know, so if there is psi between human beings, is there psi between humans and plants or humans and animals and all of that kind of stuff? And then if if there is psi between plants and animals, then are we saying that they also have consciousness, Um, you know, all all of this kind of stuff. So it very quickly spreads. So you start off with psi and you end up with plant consciousness, which could be interpreted as, you know, plant spirits. And then you've got a whole 
cosmos filled with different kinds of intelligences. Yeah. So it quickly like, spirals out. So I don't think you can talk about the paranormal without taking into consideration all of the vast spectrum of paranormal phenomena because they all link to each other. You know, like UFO abductees, uh, alien abductees will sometimes come back from their experiences with uh, you know, telepathic abilities and that kind of stuff. Shamanic experiences are all to do with you know, spiritual, you know, spirit journeys and things. Um, and the paranormal and psi is all like wedded into those mm. different cultural models from interpreting it. So, um, yeah, it's pretty big, crazy stuff. Yeah. I've got lost in thinking about psi now. <laughs> <laughs> well, but there seems to be something that there's part of the analogy is there, right? In that, in that web of all these phenomena, um, mm. And that whole that whole kind of landscape that gets opened up when you start looking at that, and then the web of the ecology when you started looking at at ecology, that seems to be one of the analogies between between the two. Yeah, that's it. One of the things that I've been interested in recently is um, the tension between, like again, like organic. Uh, models or organic ways of looking at the world and mechanistic models um, so there's the good example um, you know about William Paley and his watchmaker argument from like the 18th century yeah um, and, and he, he said that, that, you know, we, yeah. yeah if we look at the world around us we see that it's all intricately connected so it, it's like resembles the mechanism of a watch you know someone's put it together and then David Hume came along and said, well, actually, if we look at the world around us, we don't see something that resembles the mechanism of a watch. We see something that more resembles kind of like a vegetable, you know, something that has organically grown rather than being put together. And it's not often that I agree with uh, David Hume, but um, in this particular instance, I think, you know, he's onto something that perhaps organic uh, models or metaphors might fit the paranormal uh, slightly better than like mechanistic technological models. Mm. So you know how like um, they would talk about things like spiritual telegraph and all of that kind of stuff that, you know, or think about the human brain uh, or human mind as a computer, you know, right. you, you're applying the technological model. But yeah. if we look, you know, like drawing on my experience with mediumship, for example, it wasn't like tuning a radio in to receive the spirits. It was more like a, a kind of like an, a nurturing, kind of like organic, like growing of uh, spirits over yeah, weeks. I found that really interesting. You talked about how often it took quite a while for communication with a particular, let's say, uh, you know, spirit person um non-physical person it took quite a while for there to be proper communication in the beginning it was all sort of ad hoc and distorted and so on yeah uh, so it seems like i mean i suppose you could apply a technological metaphor to that but you could equally apply you know an organic nurturing growing metaphor um so that's one of the directions that my thinking's been going since putting green the paranormal together is mm. you know that maybe the maybe we need to to start thinking more along the lines of organic um, process kind of models rather than, you know, discrete, maybe like Newtonian <laughs> uh, physics and yeah. technological. But that, that example um, with the watchmaker and, and the, the plant sort of contrast made me think that even in, in religion, there are these different strands there is the religious uh kind of line of thinking that is really in a sense quite close to materialism um mm -hmm. in the sense of god created everything and it's almost now like a machine right that was put in place and then there yeah. is the more organic kind of spiritual beliefs that also include sometimes christian religions but especially i guess animistic kind of uh, traditions yeah I was just talking about this with one of my students today, but um, we were talking about how even in things like the science, that, like in ecology, we've got exactly the same uh, kind of tension arising between those people who want to take a reductive, materialist kind of view of, you know, something like plant succession 
and those people who want to take a uh, an organic, holistic, almost like teleological view of plant succession. So you know, it's just it's just interesting that these same kind of deep metaphysical questions keep popping up in you know whether we're talking about anthropology or sociology or ecology. <laughs> that, really that tension is found throughout. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, and I guess the other point that, that I was thinking about, um, I think it emerged in one of the papers that you, you shared with me, um, where you talk about sacred landscapes. And uh, the example you give uh, there initially is the sort of sacred sites from the Christian religion with people going for pilgrimages, say, to Bethlehem and so on. Now, that made me think that there is an interesting distinction, again, between um, our when I say our sort of you know Christo Judaic religious traditions, where sacred place sacred geography often seems to be around um, places that where there is what we could call historic events of, of you know sacred people people have become sacred, whereas in um, animistic traditions the geography becomes sacred through uh, events that go back to the creation period of at least in Australia, beings who are considered ancestors to the people that live there today who went around and shaped the land. I don't know, what are yeah. your thoughts on those kinds of different ways of creating a relationship with the land? Yeah, I think that's an interesting distinction because you could talk about, um, you could even say, you go so far as to say maybe animist societies um, treat the land as or you know the physical environment as sacred in itself like um you know it's not like because an event happened there it's just sacred anyway uh, which which i think is quite an interesting different way of thinking about sacred landscape mm. but yeah i've been doing a lot of thinking about landscapes sacred landscape because i've been teaching on um an ma course in um cultural astronomy and astrology with the university of wales Trinity St. David, and we do a module on sacred geography. So I've been really thinking about that a lot recently and seeing all the interesting ways that it intersects with um, some of the stuff that's explored in Greening the Paranormal. So in, for example, like um, Christine Simmons Moore's chapter in uh, Greening the Paranormal, it's talking about, you know, sacred, sacred sites or how there might be certain places in the landscape where there are, you know, strange geomagnetic features and things like that um, certain places where people are more prone to have uh, extraordinary experiences and Mark Schroll suggests similar things in his chapter as well yeah. so like in relative to what we talk about in the on the MA module you know this book is more green the paranormal is more exploring the kind of avenue that Mercier Eliad was exploring when he talked about the sacred because he, he thought that there was something that is you know, sacred in itself. There is a sacred, sacredness exists independent of people. Like it's out there in the landscape and it's ready to be explored. Mm. Um, and maybe just and to explain the, for people, Eliad, who Eliad is a Romanian um, scholar of religion, I think, as well as anthropology, eh? Comparative yeah, religion yeah. and anthropology? Yeah, comparative yeah. religion, I guess. And, um, yeah, so he thought that the sacred was out there in the world. And then you've got the other end of the spectrum that we talk about on the course, which is kind of like a Emil Durkheim, Durkheimian way of thinking, where the sacred is um, socially created, essentially. Mm. Um, and I think actually the two, you know, like, like the distinction you're making then between Christian or Judeo-Christian sacred sites and animistic or indigenous views could be somewhere in that distinction between you know things that are created by people and things that are not created by people so mm -hmm. you know christian sites are associated with historical events where people have done something so that becomes a sacred site and uh, whereas for perhaps an animistic worldview it is sacred in itself to begin with and always was Maybe maybe you could explain a bit the animistic worldview uh, for people. What does that actually mean? Not everybody's familiar necessarily with the term animism. Yeah. Um, well, initially, animism, we can go back to Tyler again, is a term that, that Tyler coined. It's from the 
Latin or Greek, um, anima for soul, Latin. Um, and it's he identified it as basically the belief that the world is populated by um, spirits, invisible spirits. Um, that you know they they can live in the trees, they can live in the rivers and the rocks. And he thought that you know primitive people, tribal people, um, you know held this animistic belief that the world was essentially alive. Um, but it was bound up with this idea of animism for Tyler, where lots of ideas of you know like imperial colonialist ideas. So animism was viewed as like almost like a stage that you could grow out of. Like so an evolutionary Tyler, stage of religion. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, Tyler actually said that animism was kind of like the root of all religion. So whether we're looking at, you know, like Catholicism or some kind of like um, indigenous tradition, um, he would say essentially we're looking at animism in all of those situations. But this is ultimately something that has been superseded and replaced by rationalism and science. Um, so it wasn't until like the 1960s, really, when anthropologists uh, started to rethink animism um, and, you know, to try and remove some of this, you know, evolutionist, developmentalist kind of um, ideology from it. So there's a guy called um, Irving Hallowell who did work with the Ojibwa people in North America, and he uh, explored animism in terms of um, relationships between, so he understood, well, he was with the Ojibwe people and he learned from them that they conceive of the world as being made up of uh, lots of different kinds of persons and not all of these persons are human. So you, there are like, um, you know, animal spirits, but also you know, they talked about grandfathers, so ancestor spirits and all those kind of things. And their way of looking at the world was in terms of relationships, like how do we form good relationships between ourselves and the other persons that exist around us, um, human and non-human. Um, so Hallowell was important in bringing that kind of renewed vision of animism. And then like in the 1990s and the 2000s, you've got people like uh, Graham Harvey talking about the new animism and that his new you know, definition of animism is not to do with spirits necessarily, but more to do with understanding that the world is full of persons, not all of whom, not all of whom are uh, human, um, and that it's all about forming yeah, relationships with them. Yeah. So actually, like an animistic worldview is, like we were saying before, a holistic kind of interconnected way of thinking about things. We're always engaged in relationships with um, different kinds of persons. And I think it offers us a you know, potentially a different narrative or a different framework for conceiving our own relationship with the earth, with the environment around us. Yeah, and I mean, if you if you work in um, Indigenous affairs, so like I work with Aboriginal communities in, in Australia and I know the same narrative happens whether you're in North America, South America, anywhere where there's Indigenous people, there is a constant struggle between at, at a very local level um, around roads being built, rivers being relined, mines going down, and people seeking to protect a hill, some sand dunes, some trees, features that for you know us might seem quite insignificant sometimes, but because of those beliefs are uh, often considered ancestral and ancestrally significant. Um, yeah. So, you know, that, that is, so there's an ongoing um, almost ontological battle or clash between the Western worldview and the Western values and the way of seeing the world and the Indigenous. I mean, in your work, are you kind of, is it kind of trying to help or bring uh, this Indigenous perspective, animistic perspective into the Western world as a, as a tool to help us change our relationship with nature? In a way, yeah. But I think also, I'm not trying to say um, we should import the traditions or beliefs of um, other people because 
you know, if we take, if we really take this seriously, then the persons in the environment around where I live are going to be very different to the persons in the environment, you know, in the middle of Australia or wherever in the world. So we can't just import someone else's uh, worldview or models of interaction with these persons because it's not going to work. So what we have to do is kind of like build up our own new uh, relationship. Mm. Either build up our own new relationship or rediscover our older old relationship. Um, our old relationship. And that, this is where I think that um, folklore and um, myth, all of that kind of stuff that we have, like in Wales here, for example, we have like the Mabinogion, our mythological cycle, which is full of, you know, interesting avenues for exploring relationship between, you know, humans and nature and all of that kind of stuff. Or the the stories that we have of like dragons in the hills, or uh, uh, you know, all of these different kinds of folkloric creatures. They give us a. We don't have to. We don't. This is what I'm trying to say: is we don't have to recreate it from scratch because actually a lot of it is already there. Um, the rivers have already got names, you know. Yeah. Uh, we just don't think about it in in those terms. Uh, so you know, I think that this is where my research is going at the moment is how can we use all of this stuff to help us reestablish our uh, connection with the, the natural world? Mm. Yeah. And I love that. And I mean, that's, that's sort of the message that I keep getting here by, by Aboriginal people as well is about us reconnecting, you know, basically go back and find out your own stories and your own ancestral truth about your country. Yeah. There's a really strong sense of that each place is unique and has its own um, its own values. But I guess the principles are the ones that you're talking about that are kind of uh, perhaps universal, which are the ones of actually really connecting with the land and approaching it in a holistic way. Yeah. Yeah, I think the principles are essentially is participation um, to actually participate in our local environments instead of conceiving of ourselves as somehow cut off from it or um, separate from it and actually realize you know that our even on a very practical level like our physical actions have consequences on the environment that surrounds us so we just need to kind of realize realize our place (laughs) in the environment that surrounds us and discover um, or open up a dialogue with the different kinds of um, persons or presences that are, that are there. Mm. If that's one positive thing, I think that might come out of this lockdown situation. I mean, I'm very fortunate. A lot of people are not um, necessarily in the same situation. You know, people in cities and uh, towns and places like that, where they can't get out into the countryside, but, here i mean we've been able to stay you know in our garden and get to know the garden yeah, a lot slow better. down yeah. slow down maybe and stay put yeah yeah and hopefully that you know there are things that we can take away from this uh, situation after it's finished that will be beneficial like spending more time in our home and rediscovering our own local stories and our own um, connection to the to the land, uh, which is really lost in the West, unfortunately. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah. Okay. I'm just going through here some of the things from your book. So there's a passage. I'm sort of jumping a little bit, but I really, I really liked this. Um, passage and you've alluded to it uh, already about plants and so on having consciousness like it's been a theme but you talk about um and i'll just i'll just read a passage from from your book dream states have been found to facilitate psi functioning in human subjects what happens when we add into this mix recent findings that sleep-like states have been detected in species as different from humans as cuttlefish and trees if these non-humans sleep, might they not also dream? And if they dream, can they also communicate using sigh? 
What are the implications here for understanding societies that communicate with plants and animals through dreams and other non-ordinary non states of consciousness? So yeah, I'd love to hear a bit more about your thoughts and so on on that. Yeah, well, I mean, um, it's one of the things like we know from research that dream states are associated with different kinds of, of psychic phenomena, um, you know, like crisis apparitions. There's lots of good, you know, fairly solid, like at least anecdotal evidence for these kind of things. But there's also experimental research as well, yeah. like uh, the work of Stanley Krippner and Montague Ullman at the Maimonides Dream Lab, for example, in the 70s, but they seem to, to find good evidence of psi in dreams. So I just thought it was interesting that, you know, it's something that we all do, and it's, some, it's, a, it's a kind of a state where we all potentially connect in some way, potentially. And in this research about um, REM-like states in other kinds of organisms that we wouldn't necessarily think of as dreaming, but that we might in fact be already be connected with in some way you know subconscious mm. in our unconscious mind or something was just really interesting to me especially when you combine it with all of this other new research in things like plant neurobiology and things like that you know plants don't necessarily have brains but they're still cognitive uh, beings in some way they seem to process information the work of like monica gagliano on um, plant memory and learning and all of that kind of stuff it seems like in a way the kind of this kind of new science of plants is just opening the door on you know plant consciousness to a degree that we wouldn't you know from the mainstream perspective <laughs> have given any credence um you know a few mm. years ago i think it's it's just think it's really interesting we're going to have to start looking for these kind of um these markers of things that we'd assumed were purely human in uh, all sorts of different places now in plants and different kinds of animals yeah um, and maybe even in you know rocks and stuff we want to go all the way <laughs> well i love uh, you know i love you know that feeling when you go outside at night and there is a real stillness to nature if you live in a natural environment and to then, uh, to then add the, the thought, the idea even just that actually the plants are asleep and yeah. potentially dreaming right now all around you, right? It, it just really changes the whole um, relationship to, to that. I love that passage. Yeah. It does. I mean, um, I, thinking about, about spirits and all that kind of stuff, one, one way that I think kind of like brings it to life actually like the reality of spirits is to go out into the garden and just realize that all of the trees and plants and things that we see around us are actually spirits do you know what i mean like they are actually other minds they're not human minds they're i mean they're spirits <laughs> yeah. so you, you know you don't have to worry about like whether spirits are real or not we can just go out in the garden and see actually that they're all there already so, and then you're using spirit here as consciousness, right? Uh, perhaps synonymously yeah, with... Yeah, some kind of uh, other than human consciousness. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, and then you talk uh, in your chapter about the relational ontology... Um, maybe you could just briefly explain what the relational ontology means and, and what are the implications of that that you see for our way of interacting in the world? Yeah, this relational ontology kind of, um, it's kind of the same as what we were talking about with the animistic worldview or mm. the new animism, but rather instead of um, thinking about the world as kind of like like I was saying before, like discrete objects in space, um, you know, like, or thinking about the individual as a, an individual bounded entity that's separated from the world. Actually, we start to understand that it is all about relationships, you know, that our, um, that even like on a purely physical level, the stuff that makes up our bodies is, you know, is being exchanged in, you know, gas, gas exchanges and, 
you know, cellular decay and all of that kind of stuff and absorbing nutrients and all of these kind of yeah. things. Like it's basically, I think the relational ontology is showing us how porous everything is um, and how, how interconnected it is. So it's not about discrete objects, but it's more about the relationships between uh, different elements of the system. If that makes sense. Yeah. So it, it's really, you know, another way of, of describing what animism is, um, except animism might, you know, add in the possibility of minds as well. Um, but I mm -hmm. think, you know, we need, we need to realize that, that actually the world probably more resembles an interconnected um, system than it does, you know, our kind of like common sense, Newtonian physical objects way of thinking. And again, yeah. quantum mechanics, all that, ties into it as well yeah and the Gaia hypothesis you you refer to that a few times that sense of yeah. all of the world being a, a living organism mm -hmm. mm. yeah <clears throat> and again we've got the same tensions coming up with the Gaia hypothesis about whether it is actually an organism like a conscious organism that is you know moving towards a goal teleologically or whether it's just like blind you know mutations and physiological events and yeah things like um, it's the same well, this is this is the interesting thing right because you you you, you um, juxtapose um uh just having a, a blank here on the the founder of the Gaia hypothesis sheldrake right lovelock oh lovelock sorry yeah lovelock so you, you kind of have lovelock and then you use richard dawkins on the other side and um yeah. as kind of the the you know everything down to small units but the interesting thing is that even his accounts provide for a, a whole um, complex system. The Dawkins accounts, yeah. 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 Just, just from a different... Well, I don't think... Yeah, I mean, you can only break things down so far. You know, you can only go so far and say, you know, get down to the atoms or whatever. But, you know, it's not... I think what I'm trying to say is like um, the things that are in exciting and important in the world are relationships between the atoms, you know, when things start to get more complex, aren't they? Yeah. So, you know, like Dawkins can only reduce it down so far. And then when you get to that point, you say, well, actually, you know, <laughs> organisms are made up of multiple parts interacting with each other. Yeah. And by themselves, they become, those parts become almost meaningless. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. it's about relationships. <laughs> yeah. Even if you break it right down to the to the bare essentials, it becomes yeah. about relationships. Yeah. Um well then you talk about these concepts of re-enchantment and rewilding. Mm. Maybe you could um uh talk a bit about a bit about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, rewilding is an interesting idea. Um, it's also quite a controversial idea in a lot of ways as well. Obviously, it's something that will have to be navigated sensitively. So what do you but mean by rewilding? Yep. Yeah, it's essentially the idea that, um, you know, when I look out of my window now, and I'm in the middle of rural Wales, but when I look out the window, what I see is not nature it's you know fields with sheep in and hedgerows and um you know there's a few trees scattered around but actually what i'm looking at although it looks like a rural idyll <laughs> is actually kind of like a wasteland um it's kind of barren and you know the farmers have to fertilize the fields every you know every year in order to keep them producing grass for the sheep mm. um you know i'm not criticizing them necessarily but you know that's the way that things are um so what rewilding is basically saying is that we have to allow the ecological process of succession to to play its you know to, to play through the motions and eventually you know what we'd end up with if we just left this land would be like here like um atlantic rainforest you know like oak trees and things like that it would be like an oak woodland 
Um, so rewilding is basically saying that we need to leave areas of land um, for nature to do what nature does in and just to step back from it. Even the, the like um, the moorlands and things, you know, up on the hills around where I live, we, people go up there and think this is a wonderful wilderness spot, but it's all managed land. Pretty much everywhere is managed. So rewilding is saying that, you know, we should let some of this land do what it needs to do. And then we would be, you know, contributing to enhancing biodiversity, all of that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, and also, you know, there's a lot of talk in rewilding about the role of things like otters and uh, not otters, beavers yeah. and, you know, different kinds of keystone species and um, landscape engineers. So, you know, it could solve problems with flooding downstream by having, you know, wild areas up on the top of hills and things like that. But I think actually, you know, it's a very, it's a very practical thing and there's, there's lots of um, issues for and against it really. Um, yeah. You know, live and that kind of thing. And also I think in terms of like um, indigenous lands and things like that, you know, we shouldn't be necessarily imposing a westernized, like rewilding agenda on anyone or anything like that. Well, that's that's what came up for me when I was reading your your account um, uh, about rewilding. You say of allowing natural systems to regenerate without human interferences, um, and I what, what came up for me immediately was the, the there's been quite some, some very interesting accounts um, quite recently. Uh, there's some new findings in Australia about the very active role that Aboriginal people played here before European arrival to really manage the landscape in a very active way, but in ways that were invisible to Europeans. Um, but there's definitely a strong well one of the one of the um, the sort of uh, taglines here for Indigenous ranger programs is country needs people. And there is a, a strong belief that it's the role of people to go back to country. Um, so there's a reciprocal relationship. It's by people going to the land and doing ceremony, connecting physically with the land and also doing certain land care management that then brings out the best in the land. And if humans yeah. don't get involved, it becomes quite wild and, you know, isn't actually the ideal. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. And I think part of the problem is, you know, this, how we're so like stuck in the idea that humans are separate from nature anyway. <laughs> you know? Yeah. You know, people have, we have evolved in these landscapes, you know, alongside and amongst and as part of, all of this stuff. So, you know, we don't want to remove human beings from the equation. But what we do need to do is stop imposing, you know, too much humanness on the landscape. You know, um, the tops of the hills around here are totally barren. And, um, you know, in a lot of cases, actually not even very good grazing land. Mm. So why not allow some of these areas to regenerate? Um, but I think it ties in nicely with the idea of re-enchantment as well. Because, you know, if we tie in all of these ideas about um, plant consciousness and animal consciousness and animism and all of that kind of stuff, then by promoting biodiversity, uh, we're also promoting, like, psychodiversity. Yeah, I love know, that like distinction. The, yeah, it's cool. The different kinds of um, mind and intelligence, we're giving a space for those things to kind of, like, uh, thrive and unfurl and you know when we we do that then we start to talk about like areas where there is like bluebell woods like with the bluebell consciousness uh you know we're talking about fairies and different kinds of um personifications of these these forms of intelligence so you know by re-enchanting the landscape and changing the way that we think about it changing the way that we un understand like plants as persons rather than as objects for example then we can allow rewilding to, to take place. In fact, they complement each other and one makes the other one make more sense, if that makes yeah. sense. And, and uh, sort of hearing that maybe through the enchantment, we also might, also might tap into some guidance about how the rewilding is done in the best, in the most uh, organic sort of a way. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, learn from the traditions of the world. 
<laughs> you know, we're not the first people. Um, people have been living in the land for thousands and millions of years, and they know, you know deep down what the deal is. Even if we, we know we've forgotten about it here, but we can, you know, we can learn from others, and we can look back into you know, history and use archaeology and all of that kind of stuff to kind of delve into the way that people used to live. I'm not saying that we should go back to the Stone Age or anything like that, but you know, mm. we can learn from different traditions different um, historical periods, all of that stuff, folklore. It's all waiting to be tapped into. Yeah. Tapped into and given some kind of new life, right? The life that makes sense to us now. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well, thanks, Jack. I think that's really all we're going to discuss today. Um, I yeah. Yeah, just again, you know, I really love the fact. I think for a lot of a lot of people, um, uh, well, I know for myself, uh, perhaps at some point there was a somewhat of a distinction between paranormal research and being grounded in the yeah. in in life and in nature and so on. And I think making that bridge is a really great contribution that you're that you're bringing here. Well, I'm glad. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. All right. Thanks so much, Jack. All right. Thanks for having me. I really hope you got some value out of today's episode. If you did, why not leave a positive review on iTunes and share it on social media to help others find it. The tune Seeing Us Out is another one from Axel Teslev. This one is called Akasha. You can find more information about today's guest on my website, multidimensionalevolution.com, including any links to their work and their contact details. On my website, you'll also find my blog and information and reviews about my book, Multidimensional Evolution, which you can purchase in any good bookstore if you want to show your love for this show and get practical info for your own exploration of consciousness. Finally, please get in touch, whether it is to ask questions, share experiences, or suggest guests and topics. I always love hearing from people, as I believe it is through sharing with each other that we can all grow together. Until then, or until you tune in again, I am sending you my very best energies.